Have you ever been able to tell when a heart isn't genuine? Like when the, the actions that you see don't match the heart, when the two don't line up, when, when the heart really isn't uh, genuine or when somebody's just going through the motions. So this is actually fun, those of you that work with kids, uh, if you've ever interact and watched it like two siblings when one goes and apologizes to the other, uh, you can tell whether or not that I'm sorry is genuine, right? You can see uh, th there's, there's times where you just look at it and I mean based on the facial expression, based on the posture of the arms, based on the tone of voice, yeah they're just going through the motions, right? Or, uh, so those of you with a significant other, if you ever get caught in a conversation where you're just going through the motions, so one of you is sitting there staring at the phone, right, and you're just, you're, you're locked in and your spouse says, what's for dinner tonight, and you say yes. <laughs> what, what would you like to do tonight, and you say, fine. You're just going through the motions, right? So, uh, I, I remember particularly, um, one of those first jobs that I had as a teenager, you know, where you're not actually on the payroll, somebody just needs you to come help with something, and there was a business owner that our family knew, and me and my brother go, and we, and we start helping. Uh, and uh, for, I, we were helping with painting, doing some organizing, some different things, and I don't remember exactly. I'm not sure why he had us paint, because his motto, every time we would check in, is this what you wanted? Is this looking good enough? Uh, do you need us to do something different? He, and he would, he would repeat to us, my motto is close enough. Close enough. That was his motto. And like, as I don't remember if I was 14, 15, where I was at exactly, but like I hadn't heard that as a motto yet. Like that was not in my father's vocabulary in terms of things that he expected for me to accomplish around the house. If I had gone to dad and say, hey, dad, did I complete this project? Uh, what do you think of this? Is it close enough? I would have got this look and he would have said, son, Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You know, something, something uh, to that effect. Close enough was like, I mean, what, are you just going through the motions? You're just hoping to get close enough that your, your heart's not really in it? And maybe if we just go through the actions that, no, that just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work, right? So it, it, I want us to think about in our relationships with God, in terms of how we think about God, our worship for God, even as we have gone through this Haggai series, in the first week I talked about our priorities uh, and having lives such that we live for God entirely and wholly, is your heart in it? Or do you ever find yourself tempted to just go through the motions? That, that on the one hand, you're going through the right religious activities, but if you could look inside your heart, you would realize, no, there's actually some misplaced priorities here that you're not actually following all the way through. Your heart is misplaced in terms of its allegiance because close enough in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of what he expects for our obedience and our following him, close enough is not in God's vocabulary when it comes to those kinds of things. Uh, uh, for, for, for the way God expects us to live our lives, for his expectations of our obedience, he's not looking at it and just, just, just get close. That's not what he's encouraging us to do. Uh, he doesn't want us just to look the right way on the outside while our hearts are truly misplaced. And Haggai shows up here for the people of Israel. And you've heard me walk through this the last two weeks. And the first week, his message was, your priorities are out of place. You're, you're rebuilding your own houses while the temple lies in ruins. 
And then while they started, they listened, they responded, they started working on the temple, and then they started to get discouraged because this remodel effort, this rebuilding effort, wasn't going to get anywhere close to the past glory of Solomon's temple. And they knew that, and they said, whoa, 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 you're... Haggai says, your expectations are off. We're not trying to rebuild something in the past. We're waiting for what God's going to do that's even better. It will far surpass what God's going to do. And all throughout, especially in that first chapter, Haggai was saying, look, this is, this is why you're experiencing the curses of the covenant. Remember when God told Israel, you will be my people, I will be your God? When, when you obey me, there's going to be blessing in terms of material blessing in the land and they would experience flourishing. And when you disobey, there would be curses. And, and Haggai points that out to them. This is why your harvests are amounting to nothing. And he comes with this final, the final third and fourth message that will cover both of them today. And, and he's not necessarily exposing new ground. He's already covered for them that, that they had their expectations in the wrong place, their priorities were in the wrong place. He's already covered that. He kind of just backs up and summarizes it. I want to make sure you know what was going on, Haggai says. Let, let me explain to you why it was so important that, that you couldn't just go about living your lives while the temple lies in ruins. And he wants them to see you were just going through the motions. Your hearts weren't really in it. And that's why God was judging. And that's why God was uh, uh, allowing these things to happen. But through it all, Haggai is not trying to crush the people. There's a hopeful message in, in what we're going to see today that he wants to encourage them that now they've changed. God is going to promise blessing and not just blessing. God's got this future promise of his return where all wrongs will be righted. And it's very hopeful. It's very encouraging. So think of this not necessarily as covering new ground, but backing up and digging to the heart underneath of what we've covered the last two weeks. And Haggai wants them to see that, that their hearts were in the wrong place. They were somewhat just going through the motions and it wasn't going to work that way. So when we come to Haggai chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So you've heard this designation several times, what this would be. The work has been going on for a full two months or two months even since um, the, the last message. So about four months from the beginning of the book. This is really the last day in our account here because both of these messages take place on the last day. And here's what Haggai says. Also, in some of the other messages, you've heard him address the people, you, uh, the, the, the high priest, You've heard him address the governor Zerubbabel. You've heard him address the people. This, is, this address is going to be a little bit split up. First, he's going to talk to the priests. Then he's going to talk to the people. And finally, he's going to talk to Zerubbabel and kind of the royal family. And so he, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. So here's Haggai's message. He goes to the priests, and it was the priest's job to offer sacrifices, but often the priests would also have to interpret the law. They, they, they knew the, the think, think of things like Leviticus, Numbers, some of those instructions that were given to the priests, they knew these forwards and backwards and front ways and sideways, and they had to apply them in the day and life of the people. And so Haggai comes, and he's got a question from God. Ask the priests about this scenario, hypothetical situation. They know the law. They need to apply the law in this situation. And here's what he says. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with it the fold his his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food 
does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. So what's going on? Here's what he's saying. If you went back into Leviticus, you would see that, remember the sacrificial system. God was very, very particular because he's a holy and righteous God, because he is pure. All the sacrifices that were offered to him, the instruments that they were offered with, the altar that they were offered on, all of it had to be clean. You remember the ritual systems in the Old Testament? These things are clean and these things are unclean and if it becomes defiled, here's what you have to do to reclaim. Because God is a God who's holy, he cared about that in particular detail. Close enough wasn't in his vocabulary, right? And there were things that, that, that had to be done so that things would be signified as pure and clean. And if you went back in Leviticus, you would see that if meat was clean, if meat was designated as clean, and if it was in the fold of a garment, well then that, that holiness or cleanness would transfer one degree. Now that garment now becomes clean. There was room for that in the law. But the particular question is now if that garment then touches a third to a third degree, a, a utensil or food, can that holiness and cleanness transfer to a third degree. Well, there was no allowance for that in the law. And the priest says, no, holiness or cleanness or purity before God can't transfer to that third degree. It doesn't work that way. So the, the priest correctly interpreted it. Now Haggai says, then if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? You remember some of those things that were in Leviticus, especially numbers here that if, if you touched a dead body, well, a dead body was certainly unclean. And if you touched the dead body, you became unclean. So if you're touching the dead body here, and then he wants to know in a third degree, does the, does the, the impurity, the uncleanness transfer? So you've got dead body body, you touch it, you become unclean, you touch something else, does that now become unclean? Yes, the answer is. Impurity does work that way. Uncleanness, it, it has a, I don't know what the right word is, higher degree of contamination, and the, and the priest right, rightly realized, yes, sin works that way. Uncleanness, impurity before God, the priest answered and says, it does become unclean. Here's what Haggai said. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is, with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? And when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all with your products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider. And I will pause right there. All throughout the book, he's asking them, look at your ways, consider, examine what is taking place. And in this hypothetical scenario, he's just set up where you, you, cleanness or holiness or sanctification can't transfer to the third degree, and yet impurity, uncleanness does. He says, this is exactly what's happened with you as a people. That, that dead, decaying temple, this... this, this uh, abomination that you've allowed to exist in your presence where you came back to Jerusalem and for 16 some years you worked on your own houses? Well, if you went back into Ezra, and remember I've said all along that we can get some more of the details of what happened in Ezra, you'll see one of the first things they did was they reconstructed the altar. 
So, so they rebuilt the altar and they wanted to do some of these sacrifices and things and they let the rest of the temple continue in shambles around them while they put all of their resources into their own houses. Now let me ask you, how well is that going to work? If you remember some of the things in Leviticus and Numbers and how deeply God cared about purity, about ceremonial cleanness, the way the priests had to offer their sacrifices. And if all they've got is an altar in the temple courtyard and the rest of the temple isn't finished, there's no way they're going to be able to offer sacrifices in the way that God wanted. And, and so for years, they've been going through the motions. They're offering sacrifices that, that don't really mean anything because their hearts aren't in it. They're not concerned enough about their relationship with God to take these uh, rituals of ceremonial cleanness and to take some of the commandments from God and follow through on them. And so even what they're trying to do, even what they're trying to do in their, in their sacrifices, God says, no, this doesn't work. You're, you're touching a dead corpse, which makes you unclean, and you're offering me this sacrifice. It doesn't work you're going through the motions your heart's not in the right place and don't you see look backwards consider this think about how it's worked that's why your harvest came to nothing you went to the wine vat to draw 50 measures guess what was there 20 that's the covenant curses that's God saying when you don't obey me I don't bless you that's what God is saying and now in the last few months, Haggai has shown up and the people have gotten serious about their relationship with God. They recognize that there's a problem. They realize that the temple needs to be finished. And there's something of like a temple foundation ground laying ceremony where they, would, where they would lay the foundation. Think of like in our Western culture, a groundbreaking ceremony where you've got everybody with the gold shovel and, and they get together and they're so excited to start this. And, and here the people would have had like a foundation laying ceremony. And this is what... This is what Haggai is saying. Because you've now gotten serious, watch now what God is going to do. As you strive to get clean, as you strive to follow God as you should, consider, look at it. He says in verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. What a hopeful, encouraging promise that Haggai is now saying, now they're going to be able to see some of the blessings of the covenant. They're actually going to see their harvests yield something. And so they're waiting. They had just finished earlier in the book. They had finished a harvest. And now the next harvest, they're going to be able to see God's blessing because they've walked in obedience and they have followed God. And then there's one final message now where Haggai turns to Zerubbabel, to the royal family, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Same day. Two messages on this day. Speak to Zerubbabel. Remember, he was governor. He was the highest political person. Israel didn't have a king, but he was in the Davidic line. He was heir to the throne. He was the governor of Judah saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts." 
We'll talk a little bit more about what it, what it means that this promise was given to Zerubbabel, what it means that he's a signet ring that's significant. We'll look at that a little bit later on. But what you need to see right now is this promise that there's this future, there's, there's hope. And earlier in the chapter, you saw this where, where God said that he was about to grab the nations and he was going to shake them. And the indication there was that the wealth of the nations would come in to rebuild the temple. This is a little bit different tone. This is judgment on the surrounding nations. That God is going to bring a significant judgment and some of the promises that prophets have been prophesying all along, there's going to be a fulfillment to that. And God is going to bring judgment on the godless nations around them. Chaos so great, it says in verse 22, that, that everyone by the sword of his brother will be killed. There will be chaos so great that nation turns against nation. And, and God, through his sovereign power, overthrows the nations, and he, he raises Israel to its prominent place. And he does it specifically through Zerubbabel. On that day, verse 23 says, probably an indication of the day of the Lord, which so much of prophetic literature points to. And, and you see this hope that God is not yet done with Israel. God has not abandoned his promises to Israel. And you see this nation that has now, they've been walking in disobedience, such disobedience that they were actually led off into captivity. They're under the control of Persia at this point. Babylon was the one that carried them off, and then Persia conquers Babylon, and, and yet there was this promise. There's this thread. There's this hopeful thread that God's not going to abandon his promises, and, and so he allows a group to come back to rebuild the city. They don't even do very well at rebuilding the city. They spend all their time on their own houses, and God loves them. He sends a prophet to them. They start getting some of their priorities straight. He encourages them to keep their perspective right. And he says, listen, I don't want you to go through the motions. If you've got this, this decomposing sin in your midst and you're not dealing with it, every, it's corrupting everything. And what an encouragement that God loves his people. He's now going to, he's brought them to repentance and he says, I, I will bless you. I'm going to accomplish great things for you and here's what it's going to look like in some day. And so that brings us to the close of the book, these two chapters as we've walked through this. <clears throat> what would be some encouragement for us as a people as we think about this and we apply it to our lives? Well, there's a few things that I'd like to walk through. One is simply even just to think of this concept of blessings, and we need to do this quickly. But in, in that verse where he says, consider and from this day forward I will bless you, and you think about the specific promises that, that Israel had as an Old Testament nation, and you realize often God made concrete one-to-one -one for his Old Testament Israel people, you do this, I will bless you in this way. And often that blessing was physical. It was material. It was tied to the land. It had to do with wealth. So for us as New Testament Christians, how do we think about this? And for as much as you've heard me, even as we went through the book of Philippians, we looked at what it meant to have blessings. I think that we as New Testament Christians have to work hard to define and understand what does it mean to have blessings. And you often heard me talk about how dangerous it is when people equate one-to-one -one physical material blessing with a sign of God's happiness with us. That if we have enough faith, we can increase in health and wealth and prosperity. And that just simply isn't true for either the Old Testament believer or the New Testament believer, but especially for us as New Testament believers, we need to stop and realize and work hard to define what does it mean to be blessed. Because just as God promised blessing to his Old Testament people, we need to realize that even for us as New Testament believers, there is blessing when we obey God. 
There is difficulty, punishment, when we don't disobey God. And we need to realize that, and yet we also need to realize that the blessing doesn't necessarily mean physical, material blessing in this life. It might, but it doesn't need to necessarily equate to that. We, we can be promised that as New Testament believers, when we obey God, it leads to blessing. It might be in this life. It might be in the next life. It may or may not be physical. The presence of physical blessing does not is not an equation of God's happiness with us as a people. The absence of God's blessing is not a sign of God's punishment for New Testament believers. In fact, the New Testament is full of promises that those who follow God and love him and walk with him as they should, their lives will be marked by suffering. And so we need to realize that, that yes, we as a people should expect God's blessing, just make sure that we're defining it appropriately as we walk through it. Secondly, let's think about this concept of sacrifice. Because here for the people, God, God wants them to see that the things that they were offering, because it was tainted by sin, their sacrifices were then tarnished. Their sacrifices were then tainted. And so what does that mean for us as New Testament believers? What is it that God wants out of our lives? Not just in sacrifices, but in the sense of God wants the entirety of our hearts. He doesn't just want us going through the motions. Instead, what he wants for us is our hearts. Come back to this illustration that I gave uh, a few weeks ago as we thought about priorities and I have this bookshelf and I said think of it that you don't arrange the priorities in your life from most important to least important and you're trying to keep this book of worship of God over here on the most important in your life. No, what you think of it is is that your relationship with God, your worship of God is the entire shelf, right? A book doesn't make it on the shelf if that can't be used in worship to God. What is it that God wants? He doesn't just want us going through the motions. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives lived as a sacrifice before God. He's not interested in people just praying some magic prayer that gets them, they think, into heaven and then showing up to church every now and again and finding some good deeds to do, but the rest of your life is really lived for yourself. God's not interested in that. That's like touching a dead corpse and trying to say, God, I love you. It just doesn't work that way. God wants the totality of our hearts. He wants us to be worshiping with him with full and pure hearts. Otherwise, it's being comfortable with things we shouldn't be comfortable with. Uh, it, it, it's abusing the grace of God in a Romans 6 sense where, where Paul points out, should we continue in sin that grace would abound? And Paul says, no, don't do that. Ma Jesus shows up in the book of Matthew and he challenges the Pharisees. Uh, and I don't have time to go through that passage this morning, but um, he, he wants them to see that, that, that they, they were following some of the small matters of the law. They were tithing on their dill and their mint and their cumin, the smallest garden crop. And they were neglecting the weighty matters of the law. And Jesus said, that just doesn't work. I want all of your hearts. You have this quote in your bulletin where one commentator says it this way, it's very easy within the church today to bring our sacrifice, whether it be our verbal worship, our material contributions, or our gifts and abilities, and yet be walking in disobedience, either because of a heart that is disengaged from God 
from the God of the covenant or because of a pattern of life contrary to God's standards. Brothers and sisters, may that not be true of us. We don't want to be just going through the motions. Instead, think of our lives, the entirety of our lives, as lived in sacrifice to God. Think of your New Testament life as a sacrifice to God. We, we know that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, that there, was, there were offerings that covered sin and atoned for sin, and Hebrews shows us that Jesus Christ, what we will remember and commemorate here this morning, that his broken body and his shed blood did away with that once for all. It was, it was a one-time sacrifice that covered and atoned for our sin, right? And yet, there's an ongoing system, even for the New Testament believer, of living our life as a sacrifice. And that's what we looked at when we looked at the priesthood and the church as a priesthood. So I want you to see some of these verses here. I've got a slide of some of the New Testament offerings of worship. And when you go through the New Testament, these are some of the things that the New Testament says, hey, New Testament believers, sacrifice in this way. No longer on a stone temple, but that our lives are sacrifices to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies or the entirety of your life as a living sacrifice, no longer a dead sacrifice that you put on an altar, but that the way we live is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, or some of the translations say spiritual worship. The way we live is a sacrifice. Our gifts, Philippians 4.18, specifically there, it's even talking about like our financial giving. Our worship, Hebrews talks about the, the words of our mouth being a sacrifice. In a couple of places of Revelation, our prayers are pictured as sacrifices before God. Our acts of kindness, Hebrews talks about them as sacrifices. Our faith is a sacrifice before God. So how are we supposed to be living before God? The entirety of our lives, holy and genuinely, is to be lived as a sacrifice before God. With not just going through the motions, but actually truly living it and believing it because that's why Christ died for us. He, he didn't die for us so that we could just get some get-out-of-jail-free card salvation Escape hell, escape hell and, and enjoy eternity with him. He, he died for us so that, yes, our sins could be forgiven. Yes, we could spend eternity with him. But as a, as a means of this beautiful relationship of, of him expressing his love to us and we respond in love and obedience to him such that he is glorified and honored with the totality of our life. And so let's be committed in our sacrifices to God. And then finally, I want you to be encouraged in this passage in Haggai that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who is faithful to keep his promises. And we're going to remember, we're going to gather around this table and think about the fact that God promised us that his broken body and his shed blood would provide salvation and a way of forgiveness from sins. And yet when we gather around this table, we're also remembering that someday he's going to come again. And we believe that God keeps his promises. And that's why God gives us forgiveness of sin. It's why we put our hope there, because he's a God who keeps his promises. It's why we firmly believe that he's coming again. And, and Haggai tries to encourage the people, and he says, listen, 
he, he wants them to be encouraged that God is going to do something and he's going to take Zerubbabel like a signet ring. For you to be encouraged with how God keeps his promises, you need to understand just a little bit of what it meant that Zerubbabel was going to be like a signet ring. Signet ring would have been a, a, a ring that would have been in the royal family and the wearer of it possessed all the authority of, of that family, uh, could accomplish great things with it. It was a sign of uh, uh, all the authority that was tied up and wrapped into that family. And remember that since David, God promised his people that he promised that the, the, the line would continue through the line of David, that the kings would be established through the line of David. And so as the people are waiting for a Messiah, they're waiting for the son of David. They're waiting for the Davidic king to come and to sit on the Davidic throne. And so you need to think about this. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I've got it for you on the screen. And, and God is making this covenant, this promise with David and his family. And he says, your house, David's house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In the context of this, it's making it very clear that it's David and his descendants who will be the kings forever. Well, we know how well that goes as Israel starts to disobey and the kingdom splits and there you see judgment that's brought upon Israel till we get to the book of Jeremiah and in Jeremiah the Jeremiah is coming with a word of condemnation a word of judgment and he says, as I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah or some of your Bibles might say Jehoiah, Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim is the son of Jehoiakim, same person, Kaniah and Jehoiakim. Though, Je though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. God is ready to bring judgment upon his people. In the next verses, he, he's, he prophesies that he's going to send them off to Babylon. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Do you catch the severity of this? God is saying, David, your descendant through Jehoiakim, if he was on my finger like a singet ring, gone. No, no more of your descendants will sit on the throne. Now, in, in the context, there's clues that help us see this is actually his, the next generation of biological children. He's not saying for all time the promise is removed from David, because how is God going to keep the promise of 2 Samuel 7? right? How is God going to keep that promise that for all time the kingdom will be established? And you go a couple verses later in chapter 23, and here's what Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And so the people are waiting for that promise promise to be fulfilled all along when is the messiah going to come who's the righteous right who's the righteous branch who's the one that's going to be raised up when is the messiah going to come and the people be delivered and pretty soon you get to haggai's day and the people have been back in jerusalem for a few years and they haven't seen glory returning in fact, they're still walking in disobedience and haggai shows up and says because you've turned from this day on I'm going to bless you and oh Zerubbabel the day's coming when I'm going to shake the nations and bring judgment. And like a signet ring, I will accomplish great things. God will fulfill his promises. And here he's actually talking about Jesus, not specifically Zerubbabel. There's precedent in the Hebrew Bible. You could go to Hosea, you could go to Ezekiel and see where the name of David is used, but it's clearly speaking of Jesus. 
And, and, and Haggai has this encouragement that I haven't forgotten my promise. I'm going to accomplish great things, and there's going to be a son of Zerubbabel that comes, the greatest of all sons, and he will accomplish everything that I have said, and he will bring salvation. And we celebrate that he came the first time as a baby. He didn't come as the conquering king. He came as the suffering servant, and he gave up his life so that you and I could find salvation and forgiveness of sins. And we're waiting for him to come back as that conquering king. We're waiting for him to come back and fulfill every one of his promises. And brothers and sisters, don't wait half-heartedly. Don't go through the motions. That means nothing to God. Let us be people who wholeheartedly and with whole passions follow God. One commentator says it this way, the Israelite community in the Persian period was a community dwarfed by the power of the Persian Empire. And today, as we live in an increasingly secularized world, we may be tempted as the church to cower in submission, to live in fear. But we have even greater reasons to expect the cataclysmic upheaval of the cosmos. For the Zerubbabel who was to come has come and through his resurrection confirms the promise of old. Haggai calls us to embrace that cataclysm as our hope and to live faithfully until Zerubbabel's greatest son, our Lord Jesus Christ, returns. We wait for that day. And we say, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we are so thankful that you came. We are so thankful for the promise that you have given to us through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. That you, through your death, burial, and resurrection, provided a way of salvation so that any who would turn from their sins and place their faith and trust could find hope and eternal life and forgiveness. And Father, we're, we are so grateful for these truths. Father, if there be any here this morning that haven't placed their faith and trust in Christ, may you, may you help them to see their need of Christ, their need of a Savior. Father, for those of us who are your children, may we, may we not only remember the sacrifice of Christ, may we now live our lives as a sacrifice in total worship to you, not half-heartedly going through the motions. Encourage us with this time of remembrance your broken body, your shed blood, and what it means for us. May our hearts be encouraged by it. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.